You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the lives of faithful Old Testament believers. We're calling By Faith. With this week's message, here's shepherding pastor Joe Cook. There are a lot of really important things in our universe that we can't see. Scientists who study really, really small things, they can see atoms with really special high-powered microscopes, but they can't see the subatomic world, protons and neutrons, and then there are these things called quarks. They believe in these things. They have formulas and calculations that are based on the existence of these things, but the human eye has never seen them, and yet they hold them to be real and true, and they hold them to be important. The scientists who study the heavens have concluded that there is a substance so prevalent in the universe that it makes up the majority of the volume of the universe called dark matter, and they can't see it. (laughs) But apparently, it's really important and it's very prevalent. Now, most of us in here are not scientists, and there are things yet in our life, in our everyday life, that we can't see that make a really big deal. We live in North Texas. We can't see the wind, but if we fail to calculate what's going to happen with the wind, (laughs) we do so to our detriment, don't we? We have to realize that there's wind. There's gravity. If I ignore the, the invisible force of gravity, it's going to do some damage to my body or to my property. There's another invisible force called electricity. Now, you can see it when it interacts with particles and things like that, but just running through a wire, it's invisible. When I was a little boy, I learned an important lesson about electricity. We had a dog who was a fence jumper. I don't know if you've ever had a fence jumper, but sometimes they're really hard to corral and to keep in the, in the yard. We had a privacy fence around our backyard. He's a German shepherd. His name was Troubles, and he lived up to it. So dad didn't know what to do. It was one of my first puppies that I'd, I'd gotten that I remember And he wanted to find a way for us to keep the dog. But finally, what he did is he put an electric wire around the back of the fence. And he brought little six or seven-year-old Joe out there. And he said, now, son, he said, see this wire? "Uh Uh-huh. He said, there's electricity in there. I'm six. Like, all right. He said, son, the power that's running through there is really, really dangerous. And if you touch this wire, it's going to hurt. Like, okay. Dad says don't touch it, so I'm going to believe, Dad, that I shouldn't touch it. Well, both me and the dog tested it out at some point, okay? And I'll never forget the day that I tested it out. I decided I need to climb the fence. So I climbed the fence, and sure enough, that little wire that I couldn't smell, see, or recognize that there was anything in there, I'd picked up wires before, but boy, when I touched it, I learned a lesson about things that are invisible. Electricity was real, and I had to calculate it in my world. That's the thing. That's the universe that we live in. There are invisible things, invisible forces, powers in our universe that if we ignore them, we do so to our detriment and to our danger. Our writer of Hebrews is going to be talking to us all through this chapter about things that are unseen. Join me now again in Hebrews 11 as we continue our journey I want us to revisit, as we have most weeks, verse 1. I want to highlight something for you there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This verse says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, notice, 
not seen. This life of faith is going to require us to think about the things that we can't see. You can't live the life of faith just based on what you're able to perceive. And so each of these stories, each of these true stories of people in the Older Testament, each one of them tell us something about the life of faith. Today, we get to study one of the most exciting figures in the Old Testament. Go ahead and make your way to verse 23. We're going to be talking about Moses today. I bet if I were to ask you, hey, tell me some of the things in Moses' life that were so exciting and that you just think were like the high points of his life, that you would just, if you could only pick a few, what would you pick? You'd probably talk about, hey, he stood before one of the most powerful kings in the, universe, or in the world at the time, and he said, let my people go. That's pretty bold. That's a pretty big moment. What about when he stood before the Red Sea, Egyptian army behind him, and he held up the staff and the sea parted? Oh, what about when the people of Israel were crying out for water? And there was no water to be seen, and he took the staff of God and he hit the rock and water gushed out. These are exciting things in the life of Moses, and yet the Holy Spirit led the writer of Hebrews, not to mention any of those, when he highlights the life of Moses. So today we're going to see that Moses' faith, and what's so remarkable about it, is that he learned to see that which is unseen. And you and I, if we're going to live the life of faith, we have to do the same thing. So let's begin our study of Moses. Verse 23, an interesting beginning, but if you've read biographies, you know that when you go to understand someone's life in history, oftentimes the author will start with their parents. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to do with Moses. You know, our parents, good parents, bad parents, present parents, absent parents, regardless of what kind of parents you had, they have an impact on our life. And to understand a person, you have to understand a little bit about where they begin. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, he's going to tell us a little bit about Moses' parents. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The king, Pharaoh, was worried that the people of Israel were becoming too numerous. He was more focused on the men. He didn't want an army to rise up against him. And so he came out with this order, very cruel. He said, Then Pharaoh commanded all the people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you must cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. It was a death sentence that was passed on the birth of every male child. And what we read here in Hebrews is his parents, whose names were Amram and Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed looked at their child, and we read, they saw that he was beautiful. Now, I've never met a couple, a good, good couple of parents who didn't look at their child and think that they were beautiful. But I think this is saying something a little bit more. I think Amram and Jochebed looked at this little baby and said, this is, this is a life. We can't just take this baby and toss it into the river. They just couldn't take their minds there. And yet what they could see is the king is on his throne and he has soldiers and he has swords. And here's the dilemma. If we don't do what the king says, we risk our lives and not just our lives, but the life of our other two children. Moses had two older siblings, Aaron and Miriam. What are they going to do? So for three months, 
Amram and Jochebed, they hide the baby. I don't know if you've ever been around a three-month-old baby. They don't tend to take shh very well. <laughs> they had a major task on their hands, didn't they? And finally, after three months, they had to come up with another plan. And they're in this hall of fame of faith, chapter 11. What we do know about the people of Israel is that they knew their history. They knew the origins of where they were, they were from. And when they looked back through that, they would see how God had provided for their ancestors. And you can't help but think that they were looking back and going, what are we supposed to do? They probably prayed and called out to God, how do we preserve this life? We have this inborn attitude about life, but how do we preserve it? And I, I have to imagine that at some point in time, either through a vision or through prayer and discussion, they remembered the story of Noah. And here's why I think this is true. The word for basket, which is what uh, Jochebed is going to make a basket for baby Noah, if you know the story. She makes a basket. She puts her little baby in it. She covers it with pitch to make it waterproof. And what she's going to do is she's going to set it in the river, and she's going to let her little baby float down the river. Where did she come up with this idea? Well, if you rewind back to Genesis, what we're going to find is that the same word for basket is the same word translated ark, the Hebrew word teba. It's the word for ark. It's the word for basket. And what we see is that Amram and Jochebed, as they were processing, what do we do? Well, they thought about what has God done in the past? How has he worked in the lives of people? And they came up with this idea of putting their baby in a basket. And now, if you're me, you're a very protective parent. Can you imagine putting your baby in a basket and launching your three-month-old baby out into the river? That's going to require seeing something beyond what is there. there there's alligators, there's hippos, there's, there's waves, there's all these things that could happen. But Amram and Jochebed saw something bigger than their problem. And this story was told to Moses, and it was preserved for us, and we're meant to learn something from it. Consider this verse by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. He writes this, talking about the people of old. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. What he's saying to you and to me is look back, Look at the people that are recorded for us here in Hebrews. Look at the people in the Old Testament. How did, they, how did they work out their problems? Parents, if you're going through a difficult time and you have children in an age-appropriate way, let them know about the struggles that you're going through. Let them know what you've gone through and how God's brought you through it because this is how we learn to live by faith with the eyes of faith. Even let them know your failures because we can't learn in a vacuum. And what we see is that Amram and Jochebed, they found another way. They found another way. And this was the heritage that is bestowed upon Moses. And so now let's turn our attention to him. That's how his life began, this act of faith. Now look at verse 24 with me. We'll read 24, 25, and 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he was about 40 years old. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he was looking to the reward. If you mark in your Bible, I'm going to highlight three words in that section. They each begin with an R. If you're in the ESV, and I looked at the other translations, and most of them have these three words. The first one that we're going to focus on is he refused. What did he refuse? He refused privilege. We're going to talk about that. The second word that we're going to consider is the word reproach. We're going to talk about what was this reproach that he embraced. And then the last one, and this is the important one in this section, is reward. What role did a reward play in Moses' life of faith? So let's begin and let's look at our first consideration. Verse 24, we see he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you recognize he is in the upper echelon of the court of Pharaoh? He had a cushy room. He had good meals, good food. He had position. He had power. Stephen, the martyr in Acts 7, if you go and read Stephen's account of Israel's history, he tells us some things about Moses. He says Moses was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt and that he was mighty in word and in deed. Not only did Moses have a silver spoon in his mouth, not only was he privileged, he was accomplished. He had done well. He was making it. Moses turns his back on that. He refuses it. All of this privilege, all of this power, he puts up his hand and he walks away from it. How in the world do you do that? He could have come up with all kinds of ideas. He could have said, you know, I could do a whole lot more for my people if I stay in this position and lobby for them. Maybe their slavery could be less harsh than it is now. But no, Moses, is he's not just going to gently walk away. We're going to see he decisively walks away. And you know who he looks like when he does that? He looks like our Savior. Look at Philippians 2. But he, speaking of Jesus, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Our Savior, the eternal Son of God, he walked away from a privileged position he didn't stop being God. He didn't lay aside any attributes, but he walked away from a position of comfort and privilege. And he entered into the muck and the mire of our world because he loved us. Moses looked at his people, and at some point in his life, he learned that he was a Hebrew, and he's going to walk away from all that power and all that prestige. You know, one of the things we have to recognize if we're going to walk by faith is sometimes we're going to have to say no to even good things. One person has said that the enemy of the best is always the good. Moses could have looked at his position and thought, hey, I can do a lot with this. But that was not his calling. His calling was to identify with these people. So he walked away from power and privilege. That in itself is impressive. That's enough to get him in the hall of faith, in my opinion. In fact, when he stood before the Red Sea and part of the Red Sea, that's impressive. It makes a good movie. But if I'm judging a man, what he just did here, that's a hard thing to do. And he's not done yet. Not only does he walk away from privilege, notice what we read next in verse 26. He considered reproach. That's abuse. That's, that's neglect. That's mistreatment. He considered reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt. He looked at the reproach that he was going to receive. He looked at his fellow Hebrews who had whips, marks on their back. He knew what he was doing. And this idea of the reproach of Christ, how much Moses knew about who Christ was going to be, we don't know exactly how much we know. We do know that he was looking for a Messiah, that that people of Israel were looking for someone to deliver them. But Moses looked at the situation and he said, I would rather be mistreated with them than have the privilege that I had before. See, we're, we're getting even more and more impressive. It's one thing to walk away from power and privilege, but it's a whole other thing to walk into that which is difficult. And notice the word considered. You know what that word is? It's a, it's a mathematical term. It means he weighed the pros and the cons. He looked at the situation, power, privilege, suffering, and slavery. Power and privilege, suffering, slavery, I choose that. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. This is the only time that we'll go there this morning. If you're unfamiliar with this remarkable story, I'd encourage you to go and read the first chapters of Exodus. In Exodus, you're going to see this wonderful biography, amazing biography of this man Moses and how God calls him and he begins to be used to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage. But I want to draw your attention and I want you to see that he clearly knew what he was doing. Chapter 2, verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he's about 40 years old, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie or seen an image of slavery or human trafficking, the image of one man standing over another man and torturing them, beating them, mistreating them, using them like they were less valuable than cattle. To see something like that makes the blood boil. It's injustice. And it makes our hearts, it makes our hearts ache and it makes us angry. And Moses looked upon this and maybe he'd been watching it for 40 years. And Moses says, I'm going to move into it. And he moves into it decisively. Look at the next verse. He looked this way, and he looked that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hid him in the sand. Now, commentators are divided. Did Moses commit murder, or was this justified? You know what? I'm going to let you decide. Here's what I know. He was not confused about what he was doing. Did you see how it was premeditated? He looked this way. He looked that way, and he moved into the situation. And there's one thing for sure after this. There's no guessing whose side he's on, is there? He has just made himself an enemy of the state. He weighed the pros and cons, safety and security, or considered an outlaw. I'm going to move into this situation. I'm going to identify with them. Jesus left his privileged position, and he moved into our condition, and he was considered an outlaw, and he was eventually put to death. Moses, when we live a life of faith, we're going to look a lot like Jesus. Well, let's look at the next word that we have here. We've got to ask the question, why in the world would anyone do this? Why would you do this? Well, I'm going to tell you that I believe it's because 
Moses caught the vision. What vision am I talking about? Look at Mark 8. This is Jesus speaking. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Moses began to look at the world in a different way. He began to look at ambition. He began to look at victory. He began to look at success with a different paradigm. Jesus gave us this idea. He said, when you lose your life, you gain your life. Does it make any sense to the world? And yet Moses, he, he started to see the world in that way. I'm going to lay my life down so that I may succeed. Do you think that's an inappropriate word to say success? Look at what it says there at the end. It says that he was looking for, looking to the reward. Moses is thinking, if I do this, there's a reward at the end. It doesn't even specify what the reward is. It just tells us that Moses is thinking, there's a reward coming. There's something good that's going to happen if I do this. Now, do you think that that, that cheapens what he did? I'm going to tell you that I don't believe it does. I believe it shows us that he's caught the vision that there's more to this life than meets the eye. I'll tell you someone else who caught this vision. It's the Apostle Paul. He writes in Philippians 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on, notice, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul had a difficult life. He had a lot of hardship. He was told at the beginning of his ministry, life's going to be hard for you, Paul. But, Mo, but Paul was looking to where it was going to lead, towards a prize, towards a reward. Moses is doing that too. Look, he's looking to the reward. He's looking for something that's going to be better. Jesus, Jesus motivates us with promises of rewards. Are you aware of that? Let's look at one of the most clear passages where we see it. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they per, per, uh, per, persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you notice that? Great is your reward. Jesus said, it's going to be hard, but there's a reward coming. Do you know that Scripture is not against ambition? Scripture is not against pleasure. What we see in Scripture is the problem is that our ambition isn't high enough. It's not big enough. There's more to the world than meets the eye. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine the richest man in the world. As of last month, the richest man in the world, according to USA Today article, is Elon Musk, $219 billion. I can't get my head around that number. If you were to count $1 at a time, it'd take you over 60 years to count to $219 billion. Your budget daily would be about $100,000 a day. I think I could live on that. Think about all the good that you could do with that. Think about all the people you could help. If there's something that money could solve, you could solve it. 
That'd be kind of exciting. I want you to imagine that Elon Musk comes up to you and says, I'm going to make you the most remarkable offer that's ever been made to another person. This is going to be talked about for history. Here on this piece of paper is a very simple contract. I want you, if you sign this, you're going to be signing up to work for me for one day. It's going to be a long day. You're going to be abused. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be unappreciated. It's going to be the longest day of your life. But when you get through that day, guess what? All my wealth is yours. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine? One really bad day, and for the rest of your life, you have all those resources available to you? That's a huge deal. That's an amazing offer. What God offers makes that pale in comparison. Elon Musk's deal was one day for a lifetime of wealth and power, and God says, you give me one life and I'll give you eternity of reward, power, and privilege. Paul says we're going to judge angels. It's not bad to have ambition. It's not bad to want pleasure. It's not bad to want good things. But the Scripture tells us, want the right ones. Don't be fooling around with those things that are temporary. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, says it this way, and I can't imagine anyone saying it better. Consider his words. Indeed, we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Did you catch that last line? It's not that your desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. He continues, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like ignorant, an, ignorant, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. And look at that last sentence. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. I want you to walk out today, and one of the things I want you to maybe stick with you today is ask yourself the question, where am I being far too easily pleased? What am I placing my value in? Where is my ambition? Am I thinking about the eternal reward? Am I thinking about the life to come? Because if we're not, we're missing the great power of the life of faith. We're called to look for and seek and set our minds on that which is to come. Our ambition, if it's just for this world, it's too weak. There's more to come. It's what Moses has learned to embrace. In 1 Corinthians 2, we read this, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It hasn't even entered into the imagination of mankind what is ahead for us. And notice, how do you do this? It says looking. That word has the idea by setting your focus on it. Each and every day when we wake up, you may look at your job and think, oh, it's just another day. This is just another day where I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and I'm going to do X, Y, Z. But when we have this perspective, we look at it and go, this is another opportunity to live for Christ and to stand before him and to hear, well done, good and faithful service. Moses had a king. He was already achieved. He'd already risen high in that court. But Moses saw another king 
and he was living to please him. He was living for an invisible king. Let's look at our next verse. Let's look at verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It's quite a bit in this verse. Uh, authors and uh, scholars are divided. Which time is this that he left Egypt? You know, he left Egypt twice, the first time or the second time? I believe it's a distraction. You can decide that for yourself, too. I don't think it matters. He kind of managed to make the king bad, mad both times, didn't he? Pharaoh was upset with him both times. The key point here is that his faith is how he dealt with his fear. The key point in this verse, I believe, has to do with that last clause. Look at it. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I want you to think about that word endured for a moment. It's a grown-up word, isn't it? It's a grown-up concept. As we grow up, we're going to have to endure some things. I don't know what your life has been like, but there's been seasons in my life that I haven't enjoyed, haven't been easy. You may be in one of those seasons right now. And that word endure has the idea of, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and I'm going to move forward. It's a grown-up word. It's a biblical word. It's an important concept for us to embrace. Glance down, if you're back with me in chapter 11, look at chapter 12, just a few verses later. And look at verse 2 of chapter 12. Speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? Jesus, what did he do with the cross? He endured. He didn't enjoy it. He didn't think it was fun. It wasn't pleasant. He endured it. And he endured it. Notice what he was doing? He was looking beyond it. He was looking to the joy set beyond the cross, the joy of standing before his father and saying, mission accomplished, the joy of having created a bridge to be back in fellowship with his creation. Moses and Jesus were able to endure because they set their eyes on what was ahead. When I was a boy, or boy, when I was a young man, my first real job was teaching school. Graduated from college and I went to teach school. And I don't know if I probably have some school teachers in here. That first year, oh my goodness, it's like trial by fire. I mean, I would get through each day and just kind of twitch, you know. <laughs> it, I, I didn't know what I was in for. I had lots of ideas and I, I thought it was going to be good. It was hard, it was work. I never will forget after school one day, I drove down to see my grandfather, who's 95 years old, I was sitting on the front porch with him. He was sitting there in his overalls, and I was just, you know, whining and pouring my heart out to him about how miserable these kids are, and I don't know, what, how am I going to do the next 50 years of this, you know, all that. And finally, I got through with the end of my whining, and my grandfather, in his very calm way, paused for a minute, and he said, well, guess that's why they call it work. I didn't complain to him anymore. <laughs> he set my paradigm a little bit differently. I wasn't going to that place to be entertained. I wasn't going to that place for my pleasure or my joy. 
I was going there to do a job. I was going there to work. Moses' paradigm of this life began to twist and begin to change, and he developed a paradigm of this life is not all there is. And while I'm here on this life, there are going to be things that I endure. If you read the story of Moses, he had some difficult times. That group of people would make my classroom look like a bunch of tame little puppies. Okay? He had a hard time. He had a lot to endure. Christ had a lot to endure. It's a grown-up concept. And if you're here and you're in a season of enduring... We have to learn what Moses did. He looked to the reward. And there's a key word there. If you highlight in your Bible, I would encourage you to consider this. Look at what he's looking to. He endured seeing, notice, him. Mark him. It's a lot more than a reward. It's a lot more than a position. He was looking to a personal God. He was looking to a God that he's one day going to stand before. And he's going to give an account for how he did this job this mission that's been laid upon him that he willingly entered into, and, and Moses is looking to him, his invisible king. It's kind of a strange phrase, seeing the invisible. Do you know what the definition of invisible is? You can't see it. <laughs> and yet he's seeing the invisible. He's seeing that which cannot be. How do you do that? You have to have a picture in your mind. You have to know what you're headed towards. The apostle Peter, he tells us this is what we're called to. Look, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I've never seen Jesus but I long to stand before him, my invisible king. And there are times of life that you endure. What are you looking to? Are you comparing the unseen with the seen? That's the life of faith. There's a lot before you right now. There's a lot on the news. There's a lot in the social media. There's a lot in your own life, in relationships and work and finances that you can see that, but you're going to have to compare what's seen with what's unseen. We come to Scripture, we come to the stories and the accounts, and we see how other people did it. Amram and Jacob had probably looked at Noah. How did God preserve people through waters? Well, they, they made an ark, and they put their faith that God was going to guide that ark. And, and we've got to look at the life of Moses, and we've got to say, how did he get through each of those days one step at a time? On Monday, he's going to have to wake up and put his eyes on his king. On Tuesday, he's going to have to step, get up and put his eyes on his king. That's what we see in Moses. He's refused privilege. He's embraced reproach. He's focused on a reward, and he endures by focusing on a personal God. And now we get to verse 28. Look at verse 28 with me. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. In this verse, what we have revealed to us, what we have recounted to us, and that Moses, in all of the high points they could have gone to, the Red Sea, the hitting of the rock, the standing before the king, what we've seen is Moses, he embraced reproach. He walked away from privilege. And Moses, by obedience, he, he, he begins to lead the people in this 
amazing celebration called the Passover. It's going to be the last plague that comes upon Egypt, these, these slave-owning, torturing, abusive country. It's going to bring them to their knees. The angel of death is going to pass through the city. And God tells Moses, every family that does not trust in the blood of the lamb that's going to be put on the doorpost, they're going to lose the firstborn child in that home. Moses goes to his people and he explains to them, this is what God has said. And he gets the opportunity to lead his people with the eyes of redemption, not knowing how it's going to work out. No one's ever done this before. He trusts in a God and he trusts in the process. And so each of those families, they take blood and they put it on the lintel and they put it on the doorpost and the angel of death passes by. And this festival becomes one of the greatest celebrations in the people of Israel it's one of the most celebrations on the face of the earth because it pointed to our ultimate redemption. It pointed to the night that Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, would shed his blood. And by faith in that blood, you and I can also escape death. I'd ask you to turn to Mark chapter 14. I want us to see how Jesus transformed this Passover celebration. It began with Moses. God allowed Moses, used Moses to enact this celebration. And here in Mark 14, we read this. And as they were eating, they're celebrating the, the Passover with his disciples. He took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. Nobody had ever said that before. Disciples' ears perked up. He moved on. He took the cup, cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And then he said this, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus transformed the Passover. Moses, through the eyes of faith, through a life of faith, he got to begin this whole thing of Passover. How amazing. How amazing to have eyes that could see that far ahead that this event is going to move, and this is the way our people are going to be delivered, and ultimately it's the way we're all delivered. If you're here this morning and you've recognized in your heart that sometimes you sin, well, we all do. We have a sin nature. There's, there's something inside of us that's often drawn to the appetites that are twisted and broken and take us to the wrong place. We sin. We do bad things. And those bad things deserve discipline and punishment. They deserve death, the Bible tells us. But Scripture tells us that God didn't want it, the story to end there. And through this event of the Passover that led up to the, the, the greatest event of all time, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you and I can, through faith in his blood, we can be rescued from death. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in the blood of Christ that was shed for you, I would invite you to do that. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't borrow it. It's offered as a gift. If you've never received that gift, I would encourage you to call out to Christ and place your faith in him. If you do that, let me know. I would like to pray with you. Let someone with a lanyard know. We'd like to encourage you as you begin your walk of faith with Christ. But understand this, this walk of faith, it's going to require you to look at the world in a different way. You're going to have to calculate things that can't be seen. Just like scientists have formulas that are based on the existence of these unseen subatomic particles, and scientists who look at the sky, they calculate things based on the existence of things they can't see. 
you and I in our everyday life and in the life of faith, we have to recognize that there are things that we can't see that are really, really important. The unseen world is key to being able to live this life of faith. The conviction of things not seen. Everyone in this chapter, everyone that we've studied this summer, everyone that we will study, they have lived with the eyes of faith. They've been able to see something beyond what they could see right in front of them. As I mentioned a while ago, some of you today are in a season of enduring. There's things that are right here and all over you. I invite you to consider the unseen things. The God who says, I will never leave you and never forsake you. This is the life that we're called to. We are faced with a choice each and every day. Will we put our focus on the problems clearly in front of us, or will we put our eyes on our unseen king? This is the life that we're called to. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he continues, For this light momentary affliction of stop. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. He's been stoned, he's been whipped, he's been chased, he's been pursued. His life is at risk all the time. And he's the one that says this light momentary affliction. How can you call that light, Paul? Because of that word momentary. It's temporary. It's only going to last a little while. Remember Elon Musk offer? One day, billions of dollars. Paul would turn it down. He says, I've got something better. God has told me one life. There will be affliction, but an eternity of rewards. Notice as he continues, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. Where are you looking today? Where are you going to look this week? Let's look at the unseen things. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the way. This is what we're called to in Christ, to live a life where we keep our eyes on unseen realities. That's what's going to give you the strength to endure. That's what's going to give you the strength as Paul does, to celebrate even the afflictions and the trials of life and to give you the hope to hang on. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stonelight Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.